For those of you who may be new with us, we have been in a series now for about six weeks uh, where we've been reading through the words, the 10 words, the 10 commandments, as they are called. They're found in Exodus chapter 20, if you guys want to start turning that direction. You know, Exodus 20 comes at this moment after God has brought his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And when they have arrived at the mountain where he has promised to meet them, he's made a promise. He's made a promise that they will be a people of his own possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to him. And he's basing all of this on his own power to bring that about. And so after he's made these promises that they will be his people, a holy people, a kingdom of priests, he begins to give them 10 markers, 10 words, 10 commandments of what people who belong to this God might look like. And we've been looking at the ways that these commandments are actually invitations for us, invitations into a life of obedience, invitations into a life of flourishing. And today, we get to the word about murder about taking human life, which might be a bit fresher on some minds today. So let's look to the Lord. I'll begin with Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and then I'll read verse 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And in verse 13, you shall not commit murder. And like we have throughout the series, and is our custom here at Grace, I want to pair this reading with a reading from the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. But it comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to uh, his followers here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are aware uh, that we need you as we have confessed, as we have called, as you have offered us your great mercy. We ask in this moment as we come to your word that you would reveal yourself with truth. We ask that we would see you clearly, that the Spirit would move in us to liven our hearts and our affections towards you and your glorious things. We ask you to speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Amen. So we've been through the first five commandments. They began with some treatises on idolatry, 
they began talking about carved images. They've spoken about the holy days of the Lord, about honoring our father and mother. And today we begin with some that will look very similar, four in sequence, beginning with you shall not. Um, some scholars might say there's a firm divide in the commandments, that the first four or five are, are about our relationship directly with God, and the, the last five are more about our relationship with one another. And while I, I don't agree that they can be parceled out just that cleanly, that these next few commandments really are primarily concerned with how we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with other people. But I think even their positioning here should tell us that how we are called to live in right relationship with our God with the Creator, will also tell us and show us and impact the ways that we, in, we, we interact with the people around us. So as we walk through this text tonight, as we look deeply at this word, uh, I want to take us through kind of three movements. I want to look at what this word is and, and why it's here. I want to tell you, as I may have even spoiled with the reading, why obedience to this is much harder than it sounds. And... Most importantly, I want to tell you how our God has made a way, a way for obedience and a way for life. So if you don't hear anything else or you struggle to put my organization, because it can be a struggle at times, into a single thought, I want you to hear me clearly. What I hope to get across to you tonight is that the Lord who gave life, the Lord who sustains life, calls us and will lead us to treasure it in other people. So the Lord who gave life and sustains life calls us and will lead us to treasure it in other people. So let's look again at verse 13. You shall not murder. I went to, to Beeson Divinity School, and one of the things that they said they were going to give me there uh, is an ability to interpret the Bible and preach. And one of the wonderful things about Beeson Divinity School is that they, they spend a little bit of time training you to read the Bible in its original languages, in uh, Hebrew and in Greek. So I'm, I'm like Bob the Builder. I start pulling out my tools as I get ready for the sermon. I've got my hammer. I've got my, and I'm like, all right, well, here I am. I'm going to try to look at this text in, in Hebrew. So I open up the Hebrew scriptures, and um, what do you know? It says, do not murder. <laughs> do not murder. So this commandment seems pretty simple. And I think when I started looking over it this week, when I started thinking about it over the past few weeks, the first thing that came to my mind is this, is this not so obvious that it doesn't even need to be said? Doesn't this seem like the most kind of simple understanding of what it means to be alive, what it, what it means to be a human? Why even spell it out? So two things that I have thought in response to that. First, the obvious. Even in our curated and safe spaces, violence and, and loss of life has impacted people and families in this room, my own included. This point has already driven itself home. But the second piece is not just that this is so far away from us, so unimaginable. It's that this commandment is built on something deeper than the golden rule. I remember when I was in first grade and Miss Gregory, I believe, had kind of plastered up on the wall that her one rule of her classroom about how we interacted with our friends was you do not do to others what you would not want done to yourself. And when first graders got into a little bit of trouble, when possible, if we did something to someone else, 
that was unkind or unwelcome, she would invite us up front to have it done to ourselves to see if we enjoyed it. I don't know that she would still be able to do this today. <laughs> but I do remember one time when someone wrote a marker on, on his friend's arm and uh, his friend started crying and didn't like it and she calls him up to the front and we all wrote a marker on this kid's arm. <laughs> it was washable. I think everything turned out okay. But in the end, it was clear he didn't want that to happen to him. And her point was, we have to live as ethical human beings. We have to live in such a way that we aren't doing things to other people we wouldn't want to have happen to us. And I think it's easy to assume that murder is wrong, primarily or specifically, because we would want it not to happen to us. That that would be a, a, a travesty, a, a tragedy, that, that it is the thing most on earth we don't want to happen to us, and therefore it is the most important thing not to do to other people. I don't actually think that's a false instinct, but I think this commandment is built on something a little bit deeper, because it, it requires us to ask ourselves, why? Why is that the thing that we would least like to happen to us and that is most important about how we interact with our neighbors. And I think the answer to this is because it's built on a central element of who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do for his people. So if you are with me, let's kind of rewind all the way back to the garden. There's Adam and there's Eve and there's trees and there's fruit. And then I was with our kids just a couple weeks ago and we were doing the creation story. And, and the lesson had me read out something that God had made and, and ask what it was, and they would all say, good. And as simple as possible, we got to Adam and Eve, and they all said, very good. And if you'll remember when we preached through Genesis a few weeks ago, months ago, as a church, God is so delighted in the human life in Adam and Eve. He made trees to be good, and flowers to be good, and dolphins to be good, and clams, and mountains, and sky, and moon, and stars to be good. But when he makes Adam and Eve, he says, this is very good. For God, this is the most valuable and beautiful thing he has placed into his garden. And in fact, he gives man a beautiful gift, right? He gives Adam, Eve, he tells them to get married, and the first commandment he gives them is to be fruitful and multiply. That we would, as his heirs, as people made in his image, spread the image of God around the world. That we would be life bringers like God. That we would be image of God bringers like God was. He loves it. And then we roll the story forward a little bit more. We know the story of the serpent and sin. We know what sin brings the first sin, and you will surely die, is what the Lord said about touching that tree. The serpent lied, said they wouldn't, and lo and behold, they take the tree, the fruit from the tree, they eat, and you will surely die. So sin, the serpent, the antagonist of the Lord's great and glorious creation, right here in Genesis 3, brings one thing to break it all down this very good thing that the Lord placed in his garden, this most valuable of all things, sin destroys it. You will live no more. 
And then we are treated to the first family of Cain and Abel. And we know that the first family is broken by violence and murder. If you roll it forward until the time of Noah, you begin to realize that violence and murder has taken over the entire land. And when the Lord God delivers Noah through the flood, he brings him up and he puts a rainbow in the sky and he makes a covenant with Noah and with all of creation. And what he says in that covenant, this first covenant that God makes with his people after the garden, he says, if you take the blood of man, I will demand it from you. If you take the blood of your brother, I will be his vengeance. As soon as Genesis 9, the Lord God is placing his glory and his name on the line as the defender of human life, that this is the most beautiful thing he's created, and that if you take it away, he will be the one you will meet to protect it. So throughout the scriptures, even just in that early phase of Genesis 1 through 9, we begin to see that the Lord has always deeply valued human life. And that we are at great risk if we want to be called his people to assume the authority to take it away, especially in anger or wrath or derision. So if we begin to see this in the picture of, man, the Lord really loves human life, well, I guess it's a really good thing that I haven't done that, isn't it, John? And guys, I really wish it was that easy. But as we read earlier in Matthew chapter 5, And, you know, it's kind of humbling sometimes as a preacher to preach a text that Jesus preached. Uh, It really makes you tone yourself down and try to to be like, copy off his notes a little bit. And when, when Jesus had a chance to preach this text, he said, no, 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 no. Don't let yourself off the hook. He says, truly, truly, I tell to you, if you have hated in your heart, then you will stand before the vengeance of the Lord, before the council. And I think this is jarring because I think one of the easiest things to feel like we can be obedient with or be direct with or be kind of serving the Lord with is our our, our ability to refrain from from murder, from taking the life of someone else. But but Jesus here takes all of our comfort and our our pleasure and our our self-righteousness away in this moment and says, oh, you think you're doing it so well. Have you ever listened to your coworker and thought, that fool? They don't know what they're talking about. Have you ever thought, I really just wish this person would leave me alone? Have you ever imagined how much better your life would be without that person in it? I know I have. And if your answer to these things is yes, then the Lord Jesus says this commandment is for you too. It gets even harder than this. The book of Proverbs, for example, will call out to us that our words have the great power over life and death. We, we preached in the heat, in the sun a couple summers ago through the book of Proverbs together. And a constant refrain was that our words, the way that we speak to one another, has far more power than we realize. I'll call out just a few examples. From the Proverbs and the words of Solomon, death and life are the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Another proverb, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And again, 
A gentle tongue is the tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So now Jesus is calling us to investigate, to look into ourselves, to see our own frustrations, disappointment, derision, and anger towards our brother. The book of Proverbs is calling us to be aware of even our rash words and the great damage that they can bring upon the people around us. If you read the Minor Prophets or uh, the book of Amos or Joel, or if you read Ezekiel, one thing you will find is that God himself is bringing charges against Israel, charges that they are apathetic towards sin because sin brings death, charges that they are apathetic to the needs of their neighbors because people are starving and dying on the streets of the people who call themselves God's people. And he doesn't want it to be this way. So now it's not just the inclination of our hearts. Now it's not just the implication of our, our rash words. Now it's even, am I participating in these things that are leading to death, that are celebrating death, that are profiting off of death? See, it's God himself that says to Israel in those moments, I will rescue those being killed. I will rescue the ones that are starving. I will rescue the ones that are hated. I will rescue the ones that are enslaved. I will rescue the ones that are forgotten. And where will you be on that day? Oh, my people. All right. Cool, John. Now I'm feeling it. So what does it really look like to be obedient then? Because at first you said, Never murder, and I, I thought that sounded pretty easy, and, and now you've described this life of, of constant awareness of my own emotions, of, of constant awareness of the ways I use my words, of, of constant awareness of all the people around me and how my life impacts them. This seems impossible. I don't know if you guys have ever played uh, the board game Operation. Um, we used to have it at my cabin growing up. Uh, I do not have steady hands. <laughs> So this would be the most infuriating game I ever played. It seemed like the simplest thing in the world. They would give you these tweezers. There's like, it looks like a boatload of space where you can just like reach down in and grab this fake plastic bone. And every time, every time, never, I don't know that I ever got a bone out of this thing without the freaking buzzer going off. <laughs> and there's nothing more painful than that buzzer. It just like screams at you. It wails at you. And so all of a sudden, we've gone from, this felt like the easiest thing you could have asked me to do, to, to Lord, are you really asking us to do all of this? Is this buzzer going to sound every time I fail? One thing I want you to remember here in this moment, I'll explain this in a little more detail later, but for those of us in Christ, these commandments, these words about how to belong to God, they're invitations they're invitations to a flourishing and an abundant life. They're not slave masters anymore, but they are mentors. They can guide us, they can shape us, and they can lead us into being people who love the things that our God loves. So let me try to carve a path between easiest of the commandments and totally impossible. Let me dream a little bit with you about what it might look like to be obedient. One of my favorite books is The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous book about vengeance and violence and scorned honor. And you get to the end of the book and you feel like the person you've been rooting for has only kind of fallen into this perpetual cycle of taking life. 
over and over and over and over again. All the characters' unwillingness to forgive, all the characters fighting for their own delight, for their own pleasure, for their own standing, and in the end, all we have is death. I think in this is a way that the Lord is inviting us into obedience. One of the great mercies of the Christian faith is that all sin finds its answer in the cross of Christ. That the ways that we have been taken advantage of, that the ways that we have stepped and erred wrongly, that all those things can be covered by the blood of Jesus. It's an invitation to forgiveness, an invitation to mercy, an invitation to grace, an invitation to break the cycle of sin and death. If we will allow ourselves to be brought here later this afternoon, if we will allow ourselves to be brought closer to God, we can have a role, an opportunity to break this cycle of violence around us by being fountains of grace and mercy and forgiveness. It might look like that. Another way it might look obedient, I have a picture from when I was in Italy. I was just 15 years old and I thought I was too cool for school. Uh, And we were going around on this school trip, and and we went to uh, Florence, which is where the the David is. And there's a, many of you may have been there, and there's a a beautiful museum with all these statues, and and the David stands kind of right in the middle, all alone. And it's spectacular. I was like a 15-year-old kid. I, I, I like sneered at paintings. And here I am staring at this giant naked man, and I'm blown away. I'm blown away, because you can see the veins and the tendons. It had all captured our attention. And looking back at that picture, something that I now need to realize is that even with David in the background, one of the most valuable pieces of art in the whole world, the most valuable things in that picture I took are the people walking around in the background. That if what God says about creation and what God says about humans is true, then that person I never met and I never talked to in the background is far more valuable than anything Michelangelo created. We must begin to value and celebrate and dignify and cherish human life when it's right in front of us. If we're going to be people of a God who loves it and celebrates it and values it like that, we can too. Another piece of what obedience might be like. If we understand our God having this kind of value, then we might begin to think about the ethics of the ways we live our life being grounded on this idea. That there is nothing in our economies, in our governments, in our traditions, in our, that is more valuable than human life, than God's gift of life. And I think when we, even when we talk about this, it can be easier to get caught up in the complexities than to remember the simplicities of that commandment. Sure, undeniably, this would affect the way we think about abortion and war and access to food and gun control and suicide prevention and access to health care and all sorts of things about preventing death and dignifying and celebrating life. It would matter in all those places. And there are better scholars than me that will try to help us think about how to apply that. But I want to be careful that we don't get lost in the complexities and miss the simplicities, which are that if human life is the most valuable thing around us, then how we interact with the man with the sign out in the 110-degree heat index outside of Fresh Market says a lot about what we value, too. 
That how, how we are attentive to our neighbors, even when our favorite TV show is on, or even when I could just keep scrolling Instagram for a minute, matters. Then resisting the harshness of our words, taking a moment to bite back our anger, really matters. And that these things really might show what we value and give us a chance to show the world that we value the same things our God does. We should be people that celebrate, protect, prioritize, and dignify human life. It's not enough just to not take it. I think the last piece here that I want to invite us into in terms of obedience is we should strive not to be careless with something so valuable. Um, my dad has a, a, a bamboo fly rod, and it was handmade and it's the most amazing thing I have ever seen. I love it, I want it, I desire it, it's, it's bad, it's not good, it's bad, but I want it. And I remember one day when I saw him fishing in a river with his bamboo fly rod, and I was like, are you kidding? I want to inherit that one day, don't break it. I, like that's a really valuable thing, how can you just be kind of using it frivolously? And he was like, do you want to use it? And this, I was younger, I, I wasn't old enough to be using a fly rod out in a slippery river and not break it. And he invited me to use it, and I, I felt uncomfortable, and that's because like, I, I knew I was reckless. I knew this was a very valuable thing. I knew that I needed to be careful with it. I needed to take care of it. I needed to, to treasure it. And if that's true of a bamboo fly rod, then God's people really can't be careless with human life either. Let me tell you a little bit of what that might mean. And I've done all these things this week. It might mean scrolling through your texts on your phone when you drive. I'm not telling you that's sin. I am telling you that might be being careless with human lives. It might be an, a lack of an inclination to protect the weak. It might be to, to only grieve the deaths of those who are most like us and ignore and forget about the deaths of people who aren't. It might be causing or inviting or enabling sin in others. Jesus talks about the youngest among us, and he says, woe is the one who leads him into sin. You might as well tie a stone around his leg and toss him into the river. If we aren't working together to overcome sin in our lives and others, we might be being careless with something of great value. All those are invitations to a positive way of living. That we could accept the forgiveness of the Lord and break the cycle. That we, that we might be able to value, dignify, celebrate human life when we see it over Yellowstone or over the Michelangelo's David. Or, or we might understand ourselves as, as the people who, of God who like do everything we can to hold up and cherish human life, that we won't be careless with it. Those are positive invitations. But if you're like me, that still seems hard. Because death is all around us. And now the more we think about it, it's on our hands as well as everyone else's. So what hope is there, really? And here's where we get our hope to live in obedience to this wonderful, sweet-as-honey command of the Lord's. Here's three things I want to share with you. 
They're not new. First, the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has obeyed the commandments that we have failed. Christ was never callous. He was never mindless. He healed. He protected. He dignified. He listened. He resurrected. He did more than simply not kill. He rejoiced in life in the leper's colony all the way to the center of the temple. He restored life that was wavering. He protected even the flickering wick. He's heard the cry of all shed blood from Abel until today, and he's promised to be their righteous judge. He has fulfilled the law. So the law is not sneering down our backs, scraping our skin away, exposing us in pain. The law is now satisfied in Christ Jesus and can point us, direct us, steer us to a life of obedience. Yesterday is on Christ's back, so today, tomorrow, we can live as people free to chase and value life. We can start now. Number two. You really, really can turn to him and live. On the cross, Christ entered into wrongful death. And in so doing, he delivered all who had suffered from it and done it into eternal life. He has condemned murder in the flesh and in his resurrection, he has claimed a life that cannot be destroyed by sin or man from here and forward. And... He offers this life to everyone, each individual who will put their trust in him. His obedience, as we covered, will will, will cover our disobedience, and we can be invited every morning to do the things that lead to life. Remember the names of his people, Moses, David, Paul. Each and every one of them broke this commandment, probably in a more direct way than anyone in this room has. And instead of remaining vessels of death, they became instruments of life in the work of the Lord. We can turn to him and we can live. Finally, and joyfully, and delightfully, he will make all things new. There's nothing that sin has corrupted that Christ cannot redeem. Christ has entered into death and returned with the keys to deliver us from it once and for all. There will be a day where death is a memory. Murder is a defeated foe. And delightfully, right now, we are invited to taste from the first fruits of that coming kingdom. We are called to be a people that are citizens of that kingdom and not this one. We are invited into a Christian hope that seizes the joy of tomorrow and brings it into today. We can celebrate and rejoice because even these most awful things in the world around us, we know how they're being dealt with by our God. And because of that, we have great hope. So I think in light of these things, you may look to me and you may think and ask, well, Will you let me do it? And the answer is yes. In just a moment, we're going to come down to this table, and you will be invited to turn to him and live.
You will be given bread and wine that are the first fruits of that kingdom to come. You will taste it and you will treasure it. And in you it will begin a work to build you into the person who loves the things that the Lord loves. It's an invitation to life and liberty in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would be the things that you have promised to be, that you would be the defender of the weak, that you would be the, the, the one who, who takes care of those who cannot take care of themselves, that you would be the enemy to death, and that you would deliver us into life. And more specifically, Lord, we ask that as we eat and as we drink and as we sing and as we worship and as we thank you, for the ways that you have delivered us from death into life, that you would make us the kind of people that celebrate, delight in, and produce resurrection uh, around us in our environments. Let's call this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.